Welcome to the Man Up, Man Down podcast, presented by Volker Baluda and David Pawsey. We discuss the pressures and challenges faced by men approaching middle age that we're often too embarrassed to speak about with our friends. You can find us online at www.manupdown.com. Enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. So, this week's episode at, at uh, Men Up, Men Down um, is with Bo Markson. So, I spoke with, with Bo, if I say, prior to this call, and there's there's so much we can talk about, and I don't want to take too much away. So, I have this, if I say, a bit of a longer intro this time. So, yeah, let me, if I say, read it out. So, Bo was born and raised in New York City and grew up in a household of severe abuse and neglect. As a result of this, he struggled from the age of five from feeling insecure in his body. He was always scared as a kid growing up, never felt safe, never felt any sense of consistency, and never felt loved. As a result of all of that, he started using food to comfort him from a very young age, which then progressed to drugs and booze before his teens. Suicide attempts, anorexia, bulimia, living an unhealthy life, ending up going from overweight to underweight. Bo then became a compulsory exerciser. Depression, anxiety, ADHD, addiction. And then in 2016, he started treatment, therapy and support. Then in lockdown, he started cycling, first to help the vulnerable, then to help his mental health. So there's a lot in there. And I tried to cut it down to a couple of buzzwords, which don't mean a lot. And that's obviously why, why Bo was here. And for me, the term body dysmorphia was completely new. I had no idea what it means. So, Bo, first of all, we're delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks for making the time and, and, and joining us today and uh, sharing your story, explaining what body dysmorphia is, what, what eating disorder means, and, and talk about your whole history and you know, you've you've been through a lot, so we we appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah, thanks very much. I I, uh, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share it, and I feel like uh, I feel like you've said the whole thing, so we can just end it now. That that intro kind of <laughs> kind of tells it all. Um, but I feel like the question in there was was sort of what is body dysmorphia? I thought it would be really interesting actually to read if you just Google body dysmorphia. Uh, I'm here in the UK, so I don't know where the sort of uh, results may differ. But if you Google body dysmorphia, I'll read verbatim what it says, which is very short. Body dysmorphic disorder or body dysmorphia is a mental health condition where you spend a lot of time worrying about your appearance. And I think that definition is appalling. And I think that definition is a small piece of what's wrong with a lot of definitions of how we contextualize mental health and mental health issues in general. Quite underplay it doesn't really get to the heart of what it is so i'll give you a bit more of what i think my definition of body dysmorphia is and and mm. you know i'm not a health professional i'm not trained i can only speak on my sort of own journey and my own experience but for me body dysmorphia manifests in a number of different ways and and manifests differently in each of us and, and can change from time to time in terms of of how it sort of works so i've been severely underweight, I've been morbidly obese, and I've been everything in between. And there was never a moment in my life where I had any pure 
peace or comfort in my own body. Uh, and this isn't a vanity thing. It's not about looks. It's not about weight, any of that stuff. But the way it would manifest quite often for me is I've, I've always felt and looked in the mirror and seen someone who's far, far heavier than I ever was at any given time. Uh, and that could go down to my fingers, to my body, to my legs, my face changes. And this all occurs, this can occur over the course of a day. You know, I can wake up in the morning and, tr and try on a pair of jeans. By the evening, they no longer fit. And the next day, they're too big. And, and, and so that's how, that has nothing to do with shape change, because obviously our shape change throughout the day and all that sort of stuff. But it's just the power of this sort of disease and how it kind of manifests physically. I think the best way for someone to understand what body dysmorphia is, and I've used this several times, is if you go to one of those circuses or a fun house, they have, I don't know, four or five different mirrors that you can kind of walk along. And you see all the kids going up to the mirrors and making funny faces. Some of them, you know, constrict your body and make you look really elongated and funny. Some of them make you look wider. Some of them make you look swirled or whatever it may be. That's body dysmorphia. That you never know sort of what you're going to get when you look in the mirror. And you never know how you're going to feel on a given day. Thank, thanks, you know. I, well, I just want to reiterate. Thanks again for coming on, Bo. Um, I mean, it, it's... Well, you know, as Volker said, I do like to try and do a, a bit of research. I mean, the first thing that struck me was, you know, I, I googled the terms body dysmorphia in men, eating disorders in men, and and you get lots of sort of academic papers, whereas, you know, and, and I didn't, but, you know, I, I guess in terms of sort of media perspective, any stories about eating disorders or body dysmorphia are generally you know about women um but, so you know it, it is I, I guess my question is um well you know how how did you kind of discover this is what you were going through suffering from and well you know i guess the fact that yeah it, it wouldn't be something easy to talk about to you know yeah. to say to anyone to you experience these feelings um so yeah i mean i guess you know, I think there's a question in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, I got it. I got it. <laughs> no, there was, a, there was a total question in there. And I think I think you touched on, you know, bringing up eating disorders, uh, I think, is a really important component. It's one of the sort of symptoms of body dysmorphia. And so I'm an addict in recovery, right? Kind of across the board. You know, I, I booze, drugs, sex, love, gambling, exercise, work. I, I can turn anything into a drug, so to speak. The drug of eating disorders is control, right? So, so there's no drug associated with it, but the drug of eating disorders would widely be considered control by most most sort of professionals. And so, I think what you touched on is that there's a few things at play here. Number one, body dysmorphia. I can't speak for someone who solely suffers from body dysmorphia because I happen to have the pleasure of having kind of you know ADHD, depression, anxiety, trauma, all this sort of stuff that comes along with it. So it's hard for me to determine the kind of like chicken and egg in terms of what was the catalyst. Uh, but I think I'm coming back to your question, but I think for someone like me who, who experienced sexual abuse and things like that as a child, it's very common for someone like that to have issues with love, intimacy, relationships, and certainly with their own body. And so as a man, 
I I'm I'm ra- I have two daughters, right? And, and so I don't spend my time projecting my stuff onto them, but I'm also aware of the fact that what they're exposed to it's slightly more publicly prevalent to touch on your point in terms of eating disorders. And I don't mean this to sound the way it's going to, because it's not at all this chauvinist patriarchal statement, but it's almost in a terrible way, society almost expects women to struggle with eating stuff at some point or, you know, their appearance and all these sorts of things. And men, I think historically, you know, I grew up thinking vulnerability was a weakness, right? Whereas now I think it's a great strength. I think the more you sort of share your vulnerability, A, it helps you, but B, it helps the people around you. And and so your two questions were, I think, something around in terms of what it's like to be a man with this and how did I discover that? And And the answer is, I always just felt there was something wrong with me my whole life. I always just hated myself and hated my body. And that was one of the things that was the real catalyst for a lot of my depression, anxiety, using, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I went through phases where I was in what the world would perceive to be really good shape. And I think part of the issue is that we perceive people's well-being based on their appearance. And nowadays, more so than ever, it's like, oh, you go on Instagram and somebody, that person has a great life because look at everything they're doing. But we don't know that a lot of people are quietly suffering underneath the surface. And I was one of those people. And so the way I sort of came to find this out was I went to treatment in June of 2016 for booze. You know, my marriage had fallen apart, but was at the last stages of falling apart. My business was falling apart. I had reached a real low physically, emotionally, and mentally, and spiritually, essentially. And um, I walked through the doors. It was there that for the first time I heard the term body dysmorphia. It didn't mean that I was cured, but what it meant is that I could sort of have a a diagnosis almost. You know, it's like if you suffer from something all your life, like ADHD, I didn't know as a kid I had ADHD. I was just someone who was highly intelligent, but the teachers thought I was lazy and an underachiever. You know, but I think there's a lot of freedom in figuring out what's going on for you because then you can start to address it. And I think there's a lot of power in sharing it because, you know, I think this stuff kind of grows in the dark and dies in exposure, right? So that is the case for me and that's the case for the person sitting in front of me, so to speak. So yeah, that's it's it's been a really interesting part of my healing journey, not only kind of learning about my past and all these things, but kind of Figuring out what that word meant, it, it just it it really made so many things in my life make a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, well, th- there's there's parts of that parts of your story that I I cannot relate to. Um, and well, again, commend you on your bravery for for getting through it all. And well, you know, starting a business, finding a wife, you know, even if <laughs> you still ended up going into therapy but yeah you know that thing of of sort of when things sort of make sense when you know it, it's you you realize what the reasons are behind i guess your way of thinking i mean well you know it's like i, I think sort of one of the anxiety sort of coping mechanisms is you know once you can say oh actually i'm suffering from anxiety you know once you name something it almost takes the sting out of it 
to, to be honest, I, I recently had a call Chi as well, and it was really interesting. Um, obviously, I, I can't name the person, but they, they had a twin as well. And as, as soon as we started talking, I'm like, you know, just, just based on my experience, I'm like, you ever got diagnosed for ADHD? And and they said, um, no, but I thought my twin might have it. I never thought about it for myself. They, they've done the test since, so, you know, so initial online test. And just knowing, oh, yeah, that now it all makes sense, right? It all falls falls into place, but not knowing what's wrong, right? Not not knowing how to define it. Once once you can give it, if I say almost a name, you can start dealing with it. Yeah. It it also I, I mean, it's it's I think the first you know, the first element to saying it aloud, so to speak, is is or or coming to terms with it is is uh is twofold because when you hear when you hear someone else say aloud the thing or the things, the experiences or the pain or the frustration or the anger, the anxiety, the hurt, or whatever it may be that you've been experiencing without being able to kind of contextualize that yourself, you can feel very, very alone on a daily basis. And, and I think knowing that there's someone else out there, there's, a, there's an amazing charity here uh, well, actually, it's gone global now. Uh, started by a, a, a buddy, Ben Ben of mine, called TNN Charity, the the New Normal, and, and they do a lot of work. They're expanding, but they primarily do a lot of work in grief counseling. And um, one of their sort of tagline or whatever is is if there's one, there's two. That's something that I really relate to, just in the sense of, and the premise behind that is. There's so much comfort in just knowing that there's someone else who's experienced our stuff because quite a lot of us, you know, I, I think suffer silently, you know, and I, I think especially I can only speak as a man because I am a man, I identify as a man. And, and, and as a man, you know, most of my life, it's changed now a bit, but most of my life when I've gone out with mates, you know, we don't sit around and kind of share our hopes and dreams and fears. You know, it's it's far more sort of surface level conversation that occurs. And if somebody's having a hard time, they usually kind of go off into their cave and then they come back and they're fine, so to speak. And so one of the goals that I have with the work that I'm doing is 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 not just to kind of raise awareness, but it's also to allow people to have a forum just to kind of share their own stuff and and to get that comfort that if there's one, there's two, as TNN says. But yeah. I mean, that's, to be honest, that's one of the reasons we put the podcast together, right? Because men, men don't talk, right? Say full, full, full stop. You know, D- David and I started, um, you know, if I say during lockdown, we start talking about things and we're like, we, we, we should pay, put that public, right? We, we all go through the same experience or, you know, obviously not all through all the same experience, but we all have our own little bag to carry, right? And um, you know, we need to talk about it as men more. And and I think the more awareness we create, you know, I think I think what 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 David said, right? You know, if if we talk about eating disorder, you know, I I'm 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 thinking about a a thirteen year old girl, right, throwing up. You know, that's that's my image in my head, and and obviously there's so much more and so much more, you know, variety of the the, the disease. So that's why I think it's important to to talk about it and 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 bring it out. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's 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 very prevalent actually eating disorders in men, and I think that people 
people really know two versions of eating disorders. So it's like anorexia, they associate with not eating. And bulimia, they associate essentially with make yourself sick. Whereas, you know, gross overexercise is also a form of bulimia. You know, that's expending, expelling calories from your body. And I think one of the issues we have, as I said earlier, we visually look at somebody and we think that there's a marker for if they look okay, then they are okay. And so you could make a really strong argument because I've been both of these people that the person who's 400 pounds on the sofa, depressed, not wanting to go outside, is potentially suffering from the same stuff that the person who's exercising 8, 12 hours a day, which I've also done on very few calories. It's just that it manifests differently. And we look at the person in with their perfect physique and say, wow, that person's really got it together. When in reality, they're both sort of running from the same pain. And I think it's really important. I'll finish this point on this. I think it's really important to understand the things like eating disorders, addiction, you know, whatever it is, the process or the substance that people wind up using, that is really just the symptom of an underlying cause. You know, that's the thing that's being used to numb the pain of their life, of their past. Quite often there's a there's a running theme of trauma in people's past, which is also a misnomer quite often. Like trauma doesn't have to be the big, really obvious stuff that sounds really scary. There's also small traumas, which I would encourage people to kind of look into what that means in terms of just the daily things that are instilled in us as a child, which form part of our core belief and therefore is the internal sort of narrative that we use to flog ourselves, essentially. So I just thought I'd kind of clarify that. Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of something that I've um, read a lot about, um, you know, in, in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder and you know i i guess i was quite surprised that it you know you don't have to be a soldier in a vicious war you know war zone to see your friends getting blown up around you that that's not the only thing that causes ptsd you know it, it can be divorce it can be death you know it, it can be well i guess you know it could even be working for the same company for 30 years and then being told that your surplus to requirements but I mean, and one one of the interesting things that I always sort of, well, that I found about PTSD is that as part of it, it's always, well, you know, my, my trauma isn't that bad. So, you know, it, it's not, well, you know, you turn to that soldier that's been in the war zone or someone that like yourself that suffered from child abuse. And it's like, well, I can't have trauma because what I experienced was nowhere near that. And that it's, um... Yeah, you know, that it is it is almost like a trait of, of oh well it wasn't that bad. You know, so I don't I don't deserve to kind of be struggling with this because it wasn't that bad. I, I relate I relate entirely to that. I, I the, and I've used that as a means actually once I've kind of come to term with terms with my trauma, to not actually put enough emphasis on the traumatic experiences that I've had since. You know, there have been some some sort of big life things that have occurred, some of which I'm happy to talk about, some of which I won't, which are traumatic. But because I had such severe trauma, I don't look at them and say, oh, wow, that's something that's poked a little hole in my soul. I should look at that. I just kind of get on with my life. And it's kind of, for me, the work that I've done in terms of trauma work, which I have a lot left to do, the, the, the sort of big stuff in terms of the physical abuse, sexual abuse, stuff like that, 
in some ways, in terms of working through that stuff in a therapeutic environment, there's specific trauma type of therapy like EMDR and there are several other things, but that stuff is actually kind of easier to work through in terms of if we look at our brain as a filing cabinet and things are filed incorrectly, EMDR kind of refiles these things correctly. And, and that stuff is almost easier to kind of work through because it makes sense and you can kind of put your hands and your finger on on a moment. Whereas the smaller trauma stuff, the stuff that really, you know, for the longest time, my sort of core belief was always that I'm unlovable. And by extension of that, my big existential question became, who could love somebody like me? And so if that's, if that's how you've kind of contextualized and framed yourself, you could see how all bets are off in terms of, of how you live your life and how you interact with people and everything else. And so I think that the small trauma stuff it is the stuff that a lot of people are walking around with that they're not aware of because they seemingly grew up in a home that wasn't violent, there wasn't neglect, there wasn't this, there wasn't that. But there can be little things throughout the course of our life that, you know, as I said, did poke these holes in our soul. And, and I think, you know, your soul can only hold, ha, hold so many holes before it, it starts to kind of break down to a certain extent. So, yeah. Man Up, Man Down is sponsored by Welldoing. As someone who has seen a counsellor for a number of years, I think their approach is great. They want you to find the mental health professional who is right for you. You can filter your search to highlight therapists with expertise where you need it, or you can pay to use their personalised matching service. The people who run Welldoing are experts in mental well-being, and they also have loads of posts and interviews to keep your mental health in good shape. Take a look at welldoing.org. And just, just to clarify, you said EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing? Therapy? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just for the listeners, I had to Google it, so I'm sure others had had to as well. I, I would, I would have had to have Googled it as well. <laughs> so just in case someone listens to the podcast while while being on a treadmill or so, they don't have yeah. to. Um, that's what that's what I always do. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I remember when 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 we first spoke, um, or got introduced. I think the, the original introduction came. How how was it phrased? So the man who cycled in lockdown across London, and you got a lot of press coverage for that, right? <laughs> I mean, you've you've obviously done a lot, right, and have gone through a lot. Um, and I, I took notes from from our first call and I put down surviving versus living. I think was the term you used. So, do you, do you want to maybe expand a little bit on 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 what you've done to to create awareness and, and where, where this whole cycling came in, and you know where it touched on on that part as well. Also, I mean, I guess my question is, um, you know, in in terms of you've talked about addiction and how, you know, well, I guess, A, there are always going to be slightly healthier addictions than others. But, you know, where where is the line between, yeah, just cycling and cycling? No, I understand that. I mean, I'll I'll take that one first. I mean, so I think if you're there, so people again, throw around the term addiction in the, you know, we use that too freely. We use all these terms too freely, which takes a lot of the emphasis and the gravity of them off of it. You know, the word anxiety is thrown around every single day. It's like, oh, I was so anxious. They ran out of my coffee. You know, like that might be a real anxious moment for somebody who suffers from anxiety, but it's something as a term that we just use too loosely. And so I think to contextualize addiction, to your point, you know, there are people who do things addictively. And I, they're not necessarily addicts, and there are people who are addicts. So I think 
in terms of getting clean and sober and having some recovery and having some some distance between thought and action, which is the one of the things that you get in recovery, my version of of what life looks like these days is the reality of it is is I'll always be an addict. And so I'll always think like an addict and I'll always be sort of bargaining to a certain extent with myself of throughout the daily basis of kind of looking for benign ways, so to speak, to use. And the problem is when you do do something like that, it never sort of pays off. And so I think to answer your question of like, how do I not turn cycling into a drug, so to speak, I probably have it, yeah. you know, and I think there was a period in my cycling. I started during, I'll get into how, but I started during cycling in the lockdown, the first lockdown, 2020 March or whenever it was March, April. And I have at times used cycling in ways that are unhealthy. And the way I figure out if I'm doing something in an, an addictive process or if I'm doing it a health, to your point, a healthy version of it is I have to ask myself why I'm doing it. You know, if I'm going out on a bike to punish myself, when I don't feel well and I know it's a day that I should be resting, I'm not training to join the elite tour. There's nobody sort of, you know, paying me to be out there for six, eight hours. So if I do that, I have to just check in. And that's something that I have to do with a lot of decisions and choices and things that I do. It's just a matter of kind of getting some space so you can check in with yourself and figure out the why. And 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 I think that's a big determining factor in terms of whether you're in an addictive process or not. And then it's also how you feel after. You know, when you're using, no matter what it is, even if it's, you know, work or whatever it might be as an addict, it all floods the frontal uh, cortex of your brain with dopamine in the same way that, you know, a drug might. And, and so there's a come down that occurs, not like, oh, I went for a great ride, you know, ride, I feel that kind of runners or cyclist high, and now I feel quite good. There's a, there's a fall off a cliff come down that comes from doing things in an addictive process when it wasn't something that was actually good for you. So that's, a, that's how I kind of, kind of do some introspective work and check in with myself sometimes and figure out how I'm using cycling. Uh, just to get back to how I kind of got in, into cycling. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was lockdown uh, March 2020. I was living in, uh, in Chelsea in London at the time. I've lived here for about 10 years. Obviously, my accent would probably dictate the fact that I'm not from here. Uh, but I've, I've lived over <laughs> in the UK for about 10 years through kind of going to fellowship, like Alcoholics Anonymous and all these various fellowships. I knew somebody who ran a mental health charity in Chelsea. They were closing it down, but she figured out that she could repurpose the charity to be a bit of a sort of food bank uh, as a means to keep it open. What we set out to do was uh, essentially take in food from places like City Harvest, if you're aware of what they do. They go to grocery stores at the end of the day who have food that are that's expiring and they can't legally sell it, but it's still okay. So they give it to City Harvest, who then brings it to food banks and such. And so we'd take in all these big parcels of food. She would spend some of the kind of uh, budget that she had and subsidize the shopping and then we'd cook these really healthy nutritious meals and we'd deliver them to people who are vulnerable in in the sort of borough of Kensington and Chelsea and and the way we were delivering them that was the most efficient was on these kind of public bikes these rental bikes electric bikes and and non-electric bikes and uh yeah i you know we started feeding 30 45 families at the beginning by the end we were feeding i think over 400 
which is which was an amazing experience in and of itself, and we did a lot of good. But the sort of byproduct for that for me was uh, I just got a real bug for cycling. I, I loved the feeling I got of of kind of being in that state of flow, but also being completely present at once. I surfed a lot when I was in my, I don't know, sort of late teens. And it was the first thing I had done since surfing, which was kind of <laughs> dangerous enough to keep my interest, but also had that kind of element of just being completely lost on it. Yeah, I just I just loved it. I got the bug for it. I bought a bike. It got stolen within a week. I bought another bike. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I just, um, I've really connected with it. And, and that was kind of uh, how I sort of got this start on this journey because I, I was actually, you know, if we're, ta- we're going to talk in weight terms, which I don't weigh myself, but I, you know, I kind of know where I am in my life shape wise, you know, I was for all intents and purposes, I was slimmer then than I am now, but because of my body dysmorphia and just because of quite frankly, the, the messaging that exists in the cycling industry, I didn't feel comfortable calling myself a cyclist when I got into cycling. I didn't feel comfortable kind of going on group rides really i didn't feel comfortable going into you know cycling environments like that because i felt like i didn't look the part of the cyclist all of the ads and all of the messaging and everything that i saw were these sort of people who were you know just not the body type that i was essentially and um so i as a kind of joke i started the instagram handle dad bod cyclist uh, not to shamelessly plug it, but it's dadbod underscore cyclist. Um, and that was designed to do three things. One, share my kind of cycling photos because I, I love taking photos and I love to cycle. The second was to uh, essentially just be able to write little snippets of things that I thought were sort of throwaway things. And the third was really as a means for me to quite publicly just share my own kind of struggles, which, you know, in the sort of fellowships that I was in or am in, uh, we talk about how we, part of the intent is to give away so freely what was given to us. And I don't think of the stuff in a religious context at all. You can be religious in the rooms, you can be not religious and everything in between. But that was one of the messages that I really kind of keep with me in this, and as we talked about earlier. And so this Instagram account, you know, that very early on, one of my early posts was 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 three slides. There was a photo of me in Lycra. There was a photo of me at one of my most extra anorexic times. And there was a photo which was one of my heavier times. And it wasn't this like, ooh, transformation before and after. Look at how great I look thing. It was to express the fact that I've felt just as shit in every single one of those photos about my body. And it was really short, but and I put it out there, and the, the response to it was crazy. You know, well, it didn't you know go viral and get millions of hits, but I, I got tons and tons of responses of people, men, women, everyone, just saying, "Wow, I really connected with that. I identify with that. I never saw something like that before. I never heard somebody talk about it in that way." And I, from that moment forward, was just like, "Wow, this is really cool. This is something, you know." that maybe I can do not, not that I had any big plans for it at the time, but I just felt like I could share my stuff kind of honestly with the hope of helping others. And, and from there, I mean, we can talk in a minute in terms of what I've been up to since, but you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, I think raised some awareness and it's made some 
changes in the industry and it's going to do more good going forward. So, yeah. It's funny. I almost, because I'm a keen cyclist and I almost stopped cycling. Well, I stopped cycling during lockdown. I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to get knocked off my bike and, you know, be more of a, uh, but, you know, more, more of a, a drain on the NHS. And, um, as a result, um, you know, I've completely got out of it. So, Right. I'm, I'm hope well you know already i'm like right after chatting with Bo, i've got to get out of my bike again <laughs> but yeah i mean there, there's a brand called fat lad at the back and yeah. you know and it is like right well you're obviously trying to be a bit more inclusive but you know it's like the messaging you know isn't great but but yeah i mean i've always had a slight issue with a bike shops and uh, guitar shops it's almost like any specialist shop if you're not talking in exactly the lingo then they make you feel like you're the dumbest customer that's ever walked through their doors yeah they can be uh, scary places it's like working into a designer showroom essentially yeah everybody makes yeah. you feel like they're better than you and they don't deserve to be there <laughs> yeah i i think um you know i i think there are a lot of you know look there are a lot of people in the industry that I think are doing a lot of good in terms of raising awareness around body dysmorphia, around eating disorders. Even uh, uh, Sir Bradley Wiggins, I believe, just came out and and said that uh, he felt like he was grossly underweight at times and, and felt a lot of pressure to be while he was really at the kind of peak of his career. And so I think stuff like that is amazing in terms of raising awareness. And and I don't think it necessarily matters where it comes from or what, what, what sort of forum, but I think... Um, you know the sort of journey that I'm on is I I started I started a ride series here in London called the Everybody Ride uh, with body in, in capitals, which is really clever and looks great on paper. <laughs> but basically, you know, I, Rafa allowed me to start that ride with them uh, out of the clubhouse in Soho, and it was just the concept of it was you know if there's one there's two, as TNN Charity said. It's kind of it gave this sort of environment where I, I put it out there. I didn't know if anybody was going to show up, you know, and I remember it's set, it used to set off from Regent's Park. I remember cycling there the day of, you know, it start, it was a 7, 15 a.m. ride because cyclists love to get up and punish ourselves in the morning. And um, I, I remember there's this little hill that you come over because it starts at the, I think it's called the Queen Mary's Gate. And I was panicking because I didn't think anybody was going to show up. And I got there and I was the first one there. And then all of a sudden I just watched these floods of people come and so many friends and people who support me, you know, and there were like 50 people for the first ride and it was really successful. There were loads of people who would, who would show up uh, every week or bi-weekly weekly whenever I sort of put it on. And, you know, there were loads of people who rode for the first time with others in that first time, all, all these sorts of things. And if you took a snapshot of the Peloton and any one of those rides, there was every body type and every person you could possibly represent, possibly imagine represented. And I think that's what's so interesting about something like body dysmorphia is, you know, it knows no sexual orientation. It knows no gender. It knows no creed, race, religion, socioeconomics. It, it transcends all of those things. And it's someone something who really impacts more people than we realize. And it's something that I would say probably for most people, they're at least one or two degrees away from somebody who they know or don't know is suffering from something like this. And so 
from the ride series, we then went on to do a, a talk, a panel discussion, which was with Jenny Tuff, Emily of Chapel, and Alan Murchison, who are three quite prevalent people in the, in the cycling world. Uh, Emily and Jenny are both ultra cyclist runners who both have spoken quite openly about eating disorders, body dysmorphia. Alan Murchison is this amazing professional chef who gave a perspective from someone who's worked with top elite athletes his whole life and Canyon SRAM and all these kind of world tour teams. And it was this really amazing opportunity uh, to have this discussion and and to feedback to the crowd. And it was really well attended. And so, you know, a, a lot of a lot of the work that I'm doing going forward from this point is uh, I'm going to be reintroducing the Everybody Rides. Uh, they won't be with Rafa, which isn't to anything to do with with bad blood. I, you know, I've still got immense amounts of love for tons of people at that brand as they, they've, you know, they're my friends and I, we've done a lot of great things together. But I'm riding with a different apparel company this year called Velozio and I've got a couple of, uh, you know, things that we're doing with them going forward. I plan to to start the panel talks again and I want to sort of uh, live stream them as well, just to sort of reach more people and give a different perspective. And it's not just about bodies, it's about kind of mental health. And I think ultimately it's about two things, which is raising awareness and getting people on bikes for me at the moment. that That's really the kind of uh, journey that I'm on. And I've been really fortunate to you know, Hammerhead Rides, who make these cycling computers, they they did a short four-minute film on me, which talks a lot about this sort of stuff, which you can see online and their Instagram. And I'm not shamelessly plugging things. I'm I'm just kind of putting stuff out there for people so that they can have some some information and stuff like that. Rouleur Magazine, if you're familiar, is a, is a really strong, popular cycling magazine. And in the next issue, 117, which is coming out in February, there's quite an in-depth article about me about the work I'm doing and the perceptions that I'm trying to change. And so the the other thing that I'm really trying to do is I think brands have a responsibility to create a more inclusive environment, which is to say, you know, there should be people with normal, so to speak, bodies in their ads and things like that. And and sizing of brands shouldn't be so prohibitive in terms of, you know, the range of bodies that they fit and everything like that. So there's a lot of good coming out of it. There's a lot of people who are in the industry that are doing have bigger soapboxes than I am than I do, and are and are and are doing a lot to raise awareness. But um, yeah, it's been amazing. It's really been amazing so far. That's that's actually that's not something I've ever really considered. Um, I mean, I so I live um, in a place called Turner's Hill. I don't know if you know it, but it's it's basically the exact halfway spot for the London to Brighton ride. Um, I've done that, yeah. and it and it, and it is it's a very popular area for cycling so you get i mean you get cyclists that are just out but you also get um i mean like evan cycles um th- there's a few like organizations that have um like organized rides in the area and and sometimes you know they'll be coming past the house or sometimes i'll be out on a cycle but you know the fact is there's cyclists of every shape and size yeah, and, and until you've said it, I'm like, well, if I look at these rides, which will have hundreds of cyclists, you know, mo- I'd say the majority of them are probably, you know, men like me with a with a belly. So yeah, it's odd that a lot of the marketing and advertising content don't reflect, you know, the the variety of people that cycle. Well, it's pro- it's problematic. I, I think what it does is look, I. I- 
I can't take anything away from elite cyclists. They're they're some of the most extraordinary athletes on the planet. I think what they do is unbelievable, you know. I, and I but but I think part of what the messaging does by solely showing that because I think it's really important to show that as well. I think if you're you know if you're out there and you want to compete, you want to push your body to its limits and all these sorts of things. I think it's really important to display people at the at their sort of peak fin- peak fitness. But I think all the messaging is that what it does to somebody who may just have a kind of normal body is they feel like they're not designed for the sport and therefore it's not for them and they're not even going to try it or they're going to show up to their first group ride and and turn away because they feel uncomfortable and so you know one of the other things for that reason i'm doing this year is i'm going to be launching the everybody ride on zwift which is an online sort of platform yeah where you use it as a turbo trainer indoors because i think that's a perfect forum where if you're not ready to be out in the world in Lycra yet, you can jump on and do it in your living room. And, and, you know, I used to joke around like, oh, if you ever see me in Lycra, you know, I'm fixed. You know, that was when I was in, uh, when I was in, when in treatment and, uh, you know, I'm not fixed. I wear Lycra. I'm not, I don't fully accept my body, but I'm getting there. And I think, you know, I'm really grateful to have an extraordinary community around me. Um, I ride with a club here in London called Chain Gang Cyclists, which was born out of lockdown by a couple of lifelong friends who just wanted to cycle together for their mental health. And it's by far one of the most inclusive, friendliest environments. You know, we put on four or five rides a week, most of which are for public where anybody can join. You see every body shape and size. We've got different, you know, it's, I'm not criticizing other clubs because people do what they want. But we don't have certain parameters where you show up. It's like, are you a cool person and it's a good vibe? Then yeah, ride with us. And I think I think another side of cycling that isn't prevalent enough in the messaging of what cycling is all about. So yeah. Uh so when um when are you setting up your rides again? So though if if people again, I swear I'm not just shamelessly plugging my my Insta, but if people go oh, and my should. Insta <laughs> if people go on my Insta, which is dadbod underscore cyclist, yeah, it, it, the, all the information will be there. We're probably going to launch them again in the spring, uh, just because in terms of the weather and stuff like that, it'll just it'll be yeah. it, easier. And then there'll be loads of updates in terms of projects and events and all sorts of stuff that I'll be doing with uh, various sponsors throughout the year. And um, are, are all the cycles from London, or do you... Uh... Yeah, well, at, at the moment, what I'm saying is, Bo, I want to can you join? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Just, I mean, yeah, yeah. At, at the at, at the moment, they are they're both road and gravel. Uh, so we'll be able to 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 do both road and gravel. I am uh, in talks with a group in Hamburg, Germany, uh, who okay. are very interested in in launching an everybody ride there, and that's something that I want to do as well is bring this ride to other cities, and, and that's another focus of of kind of ours this year is uh again it's about raising awareness and putting as many bodies on bikes as we possibly can so the more people who jump on board the the more good it can do yeah and and, and that's why i was saying you know it's a shameless pluck you know the more we can get you know men and you know non-men eg women however you identify clarification. no but you know people to identify you know also different these days but um, you know, the more people we can get together, you know, and you know, for for good, good mental health, you know, good, good and better life. I think it's you know that's that's what we're here for. So it's not a shameless plug. 
So we're putting that all in the show notes as well. Do, do you have a website as well for, for everybody or not yet? <laughs> it's dadbodcyclist.com, un- unsurprisingly, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's kind of under construction. I, it's it's a placeholder, but people can, okay. I think you can enter your email there just to kind of keep keep up with what's going on. So Cool. Brilliant. I'm looking a little bit at the time. I, I don't believe we, we, if I say we managed, we, we, we got to 45 minutes already. There's there's so much more we can we can talk about. Um, yeah. But a highly fascinating story, Bo. We really enjoyed talking to you. David, anything from you end? You are more a cyclist. I mean, yeah, no, yeah there's... <laughs> it's, it's not only about cycling, yeah. We, we seem to say this every episode, but, you know, you yeah. have to get Bow on again, I think. But, um, I mean, you know, um, as I say, I'm, I need to get back into my cycling and I, I go through periods of, of trying not to drink. And, you know, I think it can be difficult to, like, find social groups, like, to... Uh, so to do activities, you know, like with men, typically it's like, oh, let's go to the pub. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, this is the sort of thing that I'm, I'm always interested in. And, you know, please come back and, and keep us updated with how everything's going. No, I will. And I, I will say this, if you are a cyclist who's looking for that kind of like really encouraging, friendly environment, uh, Chain Gang Cyclist Official is the Instagram. And if you look on the Strava under the same name, there are loads of rides that you can come and join, particularly the third Sunday of every month. We have something called Sunday Brunch, which is just laps around Richmond Park, three speed groups all the way down to chat. And then we all go and have coffees after at this place called La Ciclista and Sheen, which it's just a really fun, easy day for your first group ride to come out and meet yeah. a group of people. So, yeah. Sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Feel free to reach out to Volker or David via our website, www.manupdown.com or podcast at manupdown.com with any feedback or to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Hear you again soon.